0: Here we are on a Friday again. That means it's time for a classic episode. This episode originally published on June 15th, 2016. It is called AI Assistance and You. This is clearly an episode that could use an update. Now, 2016, man, boy, we've got a lot more to say about AI assistance these days, but I'll leave that for the outro. Let's take a listen. So... We want to talk today, we being me and you, you can talk back, I just won't be able to hear you, uh, about these personal digital assistants, uh, but not the PDAs of the past. We want to talk about the, the series and the Cortanas and the Google Assistants and things of that nature. And I want to specifically look into how are these going to be incorporated into our lives in the future? And what are some of the concerns we have? And what differentiates all these products that have been sort of coming into their own over the past few years. So to start with, you might say, well, you know, which of these assistants came first? And arguably you could say Google actually beat everyone to the punch by a couple of months. Cause on June 14th, 2011, Google announced at an inside Google search event that it was going to roll out voice search on Google.com. And the project name at Google was, uh, uh Majel or Magel depending upon how you want to pronounce it but Majel would be the the way her name was actually pronounced named after Majel Barrett uh who was the wife of Gene Roddenberry the creator of Star Trek Majel Barrett actually pr- played the voice of the computer system particularly on Star Trek the Next Generation whenever you heard the computer speak that was Majel Barrett's voice she also played uh Diana Troy's mother Loxana Troy anyway they named it after her internally uh, it actually doesn't have a name name, which kind of sets it apart from some of the the competitors. So the voice command project was a tool from Google Labs, so their research and development arm. And on March twenty fourth, two thousand fourteen, this particular feature was rolled into the Google Now product, and uh, it was part of the Android four point one release. That was uh, the Jelly Bean release. Now, at that point, the speech recognition commands had evolved a little bit. It had gone beyond some of the initial stuff where you could just ask Google to search something for you. This was also a feature that was worked into Google Glass. So if you had a pair of Google Glass, you know that the voice command would always start with the phrase "Okay," followed by Google. I'm not going to say it together, just in case some of you are listening to your devices or listening with a device nearby and it's on its home screen. I don't want to activate it for whatever reason. But you could use that phrase that would end up alerting the virtual assistant that you wanted something and then you would speak whatever it was you wanted. And over time, functionality increased. So it went beyond just searches and into more interactive features. Like with an Android phone, you could set an alarm or you could uh, set a reminder or review your calendar, and more as time went on. Uh, at this point, it has evolved into something a little bit more robust than that even. You can start to interact with some third-party stuff as well. And at Google I.O. 2016, it became part of Google Assistant. Now, Google Assistant is really the intelligent personal assistant a product from Google the earlier versions you could think of as sort of a rudimentary form or or perhaps a prototype or maybe just like these are features that would eventually be rolled all into one finished product being Google Assistant so by that argument if you say Google Assistant you know if you mark the Google IO 2016 event as its premiere then it's not the oldest but it dates back to June 14 2011 when Google announced this initial search voice search uh, ability. So that same year, in October, on October 14th, in fact, Apple introduced Siri. And I'm sure you all know what Siri is, but just in case you don't, it's billed as an intelligent personal assistant, and it was introduced as a feature with the iPhone 4S, and it's been part of the iPhone iOS ecosystem ever since. And it uses speech recognition to interpret user requests and responds with what is hopefully an appropriate action. Uh, According to Siri's creators, Apple actually scaled back what Siri was supposed to be able to do. They said that they had arranged for Siri to work with about 40 to 45 different apps that Apple had, and then the company scaled that back significantly. So the Siri creators essentially sold the product to Apple. Then they went on to create a different intelligent assistant called Viv, V-I-V. And Viv is currently unaffiliated with any other big names, but it has received funding from some very wealthy folks in the tech sphere, like Mark Zuckerberg, for example. And Viv is what the creators of Viv say. that It's what Siri was supposed to be from the get go. And, and essentially, they're saying that Siri was kind of hampered, hamstrung, if you will, by Apple and. Um, And we'll get into more about why that may be in a little bit. So Siri actually came second after Google had announced their voice search, keeping in mind that Siri was a different presentation. So you could argue that Siri was really more of the first assistant and that the Google approach eventually evolved into an assistant, but wasn't really at that same level back in 2011. Moving forward, in spring 2014, that's when Microsoft got into the game by unveiling Cortana, which is their intelligent assistant for the Windows Phone platform. And in 2015, Microsoft included Cortana with Windows 10. So if you have a Windows 10 machine, Cortana is part of that. And if you have a microphone, you can actually give voice commands to Cortana. You can also interact via text. Um Cortana is named after the AI in the Halo franchise and is voiced by the same actress who provided the voice of Cortana in the games. So you can ask fun things about Master Chief, and she always has a interesting answer for those. All of these, by the way, tend to have some sort of fun element to them, where the, the developers clearly thought of ridiculous things you could ask the digital assistants and built-in responses that were... Humorous. Uh, For example, the big one that everyone talked about with Siri was where can I hide a body? And Siri would come back with nearby quarries and cave systems and things of that nature. Now, in November 2014, we get our final big name in this battle, Amazon. That's when Amazon unveiled the Echo, which is that sort of standalone speaker system uh, that has the intelligent assistant Alexa incorporated into it. And like the other ones I've mentioned so far, Alexa can follow your voice commands and interact with the Internet, as well as with other Internet-connected devices. That list of Internet-connected devices Alexa can work with is growing day by day. And Amazon's actually trying to build out the capabilities further and, as such, has hired a team to create a guide on how to develop for Alexa. I'm going to interview one of the developers on that team in a later episode. Uh, We actually have that scheduled for later this, this summer. And we'll talk more about what it's like to develop for this platform and the potential of using such a platform in in new and creative ways. So we have four really big players in the space. We've got Apple and Google and Microsoft and Amazon already vying to be the big digital assistant provider. Then we have the other names, like we've got the team behind Viv and other apps as well that are in this space that are trying to kind of become the voice that you interact with um, so that it can do all the things you need it to do in a as seamless a way as possible. So one of the things we need to also look at is how does this differentiate? How do these different players, how are they different from one another? If they're exactly the same as each other, then it really doesn't matter which one you pick, right? I mean, there, it kind of depends just which platform you have available. If you have all iOS devices, then Siri is pretty much going to be the one you're going to depend upon the most, most likely at any rate. So, Cortana, Siri, and Google Assistant are all part of existing platforms, like smartphones and computers. So they, they are incorporated into things that we already have. You know, you probably already have a smartphone or a computer or both. And so it makes sense that you would incorporate your digital assistant into that. You don't have to buy anything else. It's right there. And you can incorporate that into other systems that are connected to a personal network or a home network. Then you've got Alexa, which debuted on a standalone device called the Echo which, again, is just this sort of intelligent speaker, a smart speaker with a built-in microphone. Uh, Google Assistant is actually following suit with that with Google Home. That was announced at Google I.O. 2016, and Google Home is also a a smart speaker with a microphone. That's going to be available sometime later in 2016, and as of the recording of this podcast, I don't have a date or a price on that. So it's hard to say whether or not it will be competitively priced against the Amazon Echo It does look like it's going to be a particularly powerful version of this personal assistant. And there are also rumors emerging that Apple is also working on Siri hardware. So it'd be another standalone speaker microphone system of some sort, and that Apple's uh, Siri platform would exist on that. Now, as of the recording of this podcast, we don't have confirmation on that. So there's no timetable associated with such a thing or a price I would expect that any announcement of such a device would come at one of Apple's big events. So probably if I had the guess, I'd say September 2016 is when they would announce it. That's typically when they announced all the big iPhone changes. But that's just a guess. They might hold a single event for this particular thing, or they might not hold an event at all. They may just release it. That doesn't seem particularly Apple-like, but it's a possibility. So what's the big deal with this technology in the first place? Why should we care? Well, for one thing, it represents huge leaps forward in the field of artificial intelligence. So in one way, it's a really cool glimpse at the, at the, the state of the art in AI, specifically in stuff like speech recognition, which is pretty hard stuff. I mean, we all have different ways of pronouncing words and depending upon your region, you might have an accent that has a different way of pronouncing a word. For example, uh, you know the the Brits say aluminium, and we say aluminum here in the United States. Then, even within a single country, you have different ways of pronouncing things. And uh, when Google first began translating speech to text in voice messages, I noticed that it was having a real hard time. Interpreting the words of some of my friends and family. Now, keep in mind, I am in the southeast United States, uh, Georgia, and that is we have a lot of people here with southern accents. Uh, I have a tiny bit of one. My parents have a slightly stronger southern accent. Uh, some of my extended relatives have an even stronger southern accent accent. And so when they would call and leave a voicemail, Google had to guess at what they were saying and was not always correct. Uh, I would have to go and listen to the voicemail because the transcription would be completely indecipherable. Now, over time, this has improved. The speech recognition software has improved where it can... Adjust for things like different accents and, and the uh, different ways that people speak using a lot of different algorithms that have been based in machine learning to kind of get a grip on what is being said and even an- anticipate what the next thing will be s- in, in any line of thought. Obviously for someone like me who stumbles over words occasionally that's a real challenge because sometimes i don't even know what's next to come out of my mouth but that's really where where that power comes in now over time not just speech recognition has improved we've also had to look at the problem of natural language now natural language is how you and i communicate with one another unless it's like a really formal setting we usually are pretty casual with our language. And we can make use of lots of different linguistic flourishes and tools, things like figures of speech, metaphors, similes, puns, references, and lots of other stuff that gives meaning to what we say, but only if the other person also understands what's going on. They also have to have that benefit. Otherwise, it just becomes a jumble of nonsense. Uh, I'm reminded of a Star Trek The Next Generation episode where... Characters only spoke in um, uh, allegory. And if you didn't have that cultural background, if you didn't understand the references, you didn't understand where the communi- what, what the communication meant. Um, similar problem with machines. They don't necessarily know what we're saying all the time. A lot of machines are not very good at doing this. But natural language familiarity has been a huge challenge in AI, and we're getting better at overcoming that challenge. So at that that same I.O. event where Google announced Google Home, they demonstrated that you could start a conversation with your personal assistant asking something fairly specific, such as, we're going to go with a, a local reference for for yours truly. How are the Atlanta Braves doing this season? Then the assistant would actually break your heart by telling you how poorly the Braves are doing this season, and it is abysmal. And you could follow that up with, When do they play at home next? And the assistant would understand that when you say they, you mean the Atlanta Braves. And when you say at home, it would understand you meant Atlanta, Georgia. So it would be able to figure out the context of what you said without you having to restate when do the Atlanta Braves play in Atlanta next? You could take these little linguistic shortcuts that we would normally do in natural conversation, but t- typically, machines are not great at that. They, they don't have the capacity to understand how one sentence can follow another. Uh, but this is a, a, an example of how that's changed through machine learning. We'll be right back to talk more about AI assistance and you after this quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk.
2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: So you've got this new approach where you can continue a series of questions that build on previous questions and answers, and the Google Assistant can continue to give you relevant information, which is a pretty powerful statement in AI. Uh, Also, you might have heard that funny story that Google fed romance novels to its AI to make it better at understanding natural language. And to be fair, that's just part of the story. Google actually fed lots of different types of unpublished literature to its AI, all with the goal of teaching the AI that there are many different ways to say the same thing. So here's an example. Um, I could say, it's raining pretty hard today, or it's really coming down out there. Or it's raining cats and dogs. Or it's pouring outside. And all of those mean the same thing. But they're all different ways of saying that it's raining really hard. And it, it, there are a lot of other ways I could say the same, you know, to, to express the same thought using different words. And that's a challenge for machines because we as humans understand that you can say all these different things and they all means the same thing. But machines have to be taught that. So romance novels, as it turns out, are a good way to teach a, an AI how to interpret different things uh, because romance novels are incredibly formulaic. If you were to break down a romance novel and, to, and you outlined it scene by scene so that you understood where the beats in the story were and who the characters were and their relationships to one another – you would see that a lot of romance novels follow the exact same structure, the exact same plot structure, but because they're written by different people, because the character names and places are often changed from book to book. I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to write the same novel 40 times. It means that you have a lot of different ways to express the same ideas. So if you feed a whole bunch of formulaic novels into an AI to teach it, Humans have lots of different ways to express the same thoughts. That's a pretty powerful tool. Um, and again, it wasn't the only type of story that was being fed to Google's AI. It's just the one that caught a lot of people's attention because it the headlines write themselves at that point. So one thing that is really you know funny about that is a lot of people made jokes about Google AI suggesting different ways to rip a bodice or to make a bosom heave from the whole romance novel thing. But as it turns out, it was, there was some real thought given to using this approach. Now, one of the ways that these assistants work so well is to tap into information about you and to store all of that off of the hardware so that it can anticipate what you want and what you need and how to fulfill that. So, for example, if I'm using Amazon and I'm using uh, the Echo, and I'm, I'm using Alexa to purchase certain things off the Amazon store. This ends up tapping into that algorithm that tells uh, Amazon what I've bought and what I have browsed and, and the sort of stuff I'm interested in. So it can suggest new things that I might be interested in but didn't know about. All of that is a very powerful tool. One of the exceptions here is Apple's Siri. So... Apple pretty much locks everything down into the hardware as opposed to sharing it with third party or putting it in the cloud. That's because Apple's revenue source is selling that hardware and related services like support plans, like like, uh, product support uh, or uh, protection plans for your hardware. That's how Apple makes its money. It's making it through selling this hardware that it is producing as opposed to something like Google, which until Google Home comes out, it's selling an idea to you and then selling you to advertisers. Uh, so Apple, the, the benefits Apple in some ways because it means that you can trust Siri a little more than you could some of the other assistants because it's it's mostly contained to your device. On the flip side, it makes the actual service a little less useful because it cannot tap into the massive resources of the Internet the way some of these other assistants can uh, because, again, it's all pretty much contained to your device. Now, it can access – it can pull stuff from the Internet for you, but it's not as interactive as some of these other assistants are. Uh, so – There, With the possibility of advertising or things like Google or Amazon, rather, Amazon's uh, integrated shopping services, you start to see some real potential for revenue generation on the back end. But it also brings up some questions about privacy and security. Now, to look into that matter further, I spoke with an expert on the subject, the founder of a company called Big ID, uh, Dimitri Sirota. And here's what he had to say.
4: Well, I think that clearly there's a certain degree of inevitability around this. I think we've moved from an age of having these technologies, and you could almost think of this as kind of web dot, dot one in terms of being responsive to the user and personalization really being about kind of targeting you. I think we're now shifting to an era of anticipation. You know, the technologies are becoming smarter, and they know more about you because they touch you on so many levels, whether you're on the web, whether you're on your mobile, whether you're at the office, whether you're in the car, whether you're at home, uh, as is the case with with Google Home and and Amazon Echo and similar technologies, that they're no longer just about kind of responding uh, to a particular action. They're now trying to anticipate uh, what you'd want. Uh, And in some degree, you know, they're becoming more like your mother or your parent where they know so much about you that they anticipate your needs. Um, and there's a good and a bad to that.
0: Right. So just the actions that we would take in our homes can start to set up these these expectations, for lack of a better word, that our technology will have about us. For example, uh, the the easiest way, I think, to illustrate this to today's audience is to talk about something like the Nest thermostat, where, you have set it a certain way and it starts to learn what your preferences are over time and then it begins to automatically adjust without you ever having to touch it to the point where it's even seeing, quote unquote, seeing when you are home versus not home. This is the sort of stuff that when incorporated into a device like Google Home can become very powerful, but also, like you said, has this, this other side to it, this side that, that if we don't pay attention to it, it could become potentially uh, uh, harmful to us, or at least, at the at the very least anyway, uh, inconvenient to us. So, for example, with our setting up Google Home so that we would be able to control lighting and security systems and uh, thermostats, not only would we have it set up so that it's to our preferences, but it actually has learned when we're at home versus when we're not at home. And what that information means could be uh, potentially very harmful to us. So, in your mind, where where does accountability lie? Is this something that we ourselves are are at least partly accountable for that kind of information? Are the companies that that create this technology are they accountable? It's it's such a cloudy area. Where do you see that?
4: So it's a mix. Now, clearly, and I think I, I want to kind of emphasize this. You mentioned earlier how this could become inconvenient. The reality is is that we as the consumer want this because we want it because it is convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want technologies that are passive. We don't necessarily want to click buttons. We want technologies that are intelligent enough to be able to help us make decisions, right? I mentioned earlier about anticipation. The challenge with convenience, and convenience typically goes against the grain of security and privacy to some degree. Mm-hmm. If we really want... A mother, uh, kind of anticipating our needs, what we want for lunch, uh, where we want to go for travel. You get, you get the negative of having your parent with you after you've kind of left for university or, or left for the office is that you don't want them intruding in too many places or knowing too much about you. You want to keep certain parts of your life separate. And the reality is, is that there's a trade-off around here. So, you know, I do think that there's a consumer drive towards this. It's just that we are not necessarily always prepared because there's a bit of a lag or a delay uh, before the consequences of having this convenience are fully made aware, aware to us. So in terms of the responsibility of... Who cares about this? We as consumers obviously care about it. You know, the companies like Google and Amazon, obviously, you know, they would argue that by personalizing service to you, they are giving you this convenience. But the reality is it's really up to their best efforts or what they think is the right combination of privacy and security for now. And the reason for that is the regulators take time to catch up.
2: Mm-hmm. They don't
4: necessarily know the latest. They didn't attend Google uh, I.O., and they don't know, necessarily know how to react or respond. So there's always going to be this this lag between what the consumers want, what the comp- companies are able to deliver in response to that need, and then what the regulators are able to introduce in terms of a balance in terms of rules and, and regulations, uh, and in this particular case, in around privacy and security.
0: And I, w- I would argue that the companies have it in their best interest to handle this as carefully as possible for multiple reasons. One, like you just pointed out, if they do not, then that means that you're going to get that, that sort of tick-tock effect, the tick being that they take a certain approach, the talk being that regulations are following because if there's any mishandling, uh, especially uh, of, a, of a chaotic scale, then there's going to be a, a harsh response further down the line, and it doesn't behoove the companies to, to, uh, in, invite that in. Also, obviously, if they do not prove to be responsible with that data, that reflects poorly on them from a consumer standpoint as well, they'll lose customers. So it's not as if there's no incentive on the company's part to be careful, but at the same time, they want to be able to leverage that data, uh, to, to make as good use of it as possible. We're going to wrap up our discussion about AI assistance and you, at least the 2016 version, after we come back from these messages. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today
3: at concur.com. That's C O N C U R.com.
0: And you realize that the service you are using uh doesn't cost you anything, then essentially that means that you yourself are the product and that what you are doing is generating value for another entity out there. For example, like Google, where you're using Google search and that in turn is gen- generating value for Google. You yourself are, are the product being sold to other companies. So it's, it's one of those things where it's the balance between the desire to provide this service and to make... Um, you know, revenue off of, off of something beyond just selling a, a device like the Google Home device and making sure, certain that you don't alienate your consumer base or invite particularly restrictive regulations. Uh, to that end, of course, in the United States, it's one story. In other parts of the world, there are, uh, different views of, of privacy and security, some of which go well beyond what is typically seen here in the U.S. Do you think the device, do you think Google Home and things like Amazon's Echo, do you think those are going to have different levels of uh, acceptance in different parts of the world? And where do you think might be a case for this is probably going to be a big success in one place. We've heard that Amazon Echo has been a pretty big success so far uh, versus a market where it may not be.
4: Yeah, well you've seen uh even things like credit card adoption uh differ from country to country um just because there are different kind of cult- cultural kind of mores around uh credit mm.
3: uh
4: around potential privacy implications um in terms of knowing kind of a transaction and kind of the origins and so forth. Um and so you've seen this in Europe in particular, right? So not all countries in Europe are uh equally predisposed to using credit cards as we are in the US. So, yeah, I think there definitely will be different uh, cultural adoption. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, like you you mentioned, rightly, a lot of these companies, it's in their interest to do a good job because we as consumers only tend to shop from people we trust. The challenge, of course, is that we will sometimes wonder, just like you are right here in terms of this interview, you know, what are the implications? You know, you could very quickly go from a situation that appears like having your mother around all of you, uh, around you, to having a situation where having big brother around you Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1984 kind of sense, in the Orwellian sense, where something is so aware of every facet about your life that maybe they just know a little bit too much. Uh, and so, you know, we're kind of entering that phase, right? We've we've historically had a few places that we weren't necessarily connected to, right? And our home, with the exception, obviously, of our PCs and our um, phones, have not been connected. They've been in, to some degree, a sanctuary. We sit down for dinner. Um, we're not connected to the net. And I think what this revelation is making people aware of is that uh, kind of in the future there will be very very few places left um, that are not networked where our activities are not kind of uh, transponding or transmitting or telegraphing kind of our activities uh, and you know it'll take time for people to adjust and as i mentioned earlier it will not it won't just be about consumers and kind of buyers but it'll also you know the the governments will have a say and as you pointed out you know, in certain places, the governments have already had a say around privacy, like in Europe, with the introduction of the General Data Protection Regulation mm-hmm. um, to better protect consumers. And I think we're all going to become a lot more sensitive to the privacy implications of always being online.
0: And I, I think that we're seeing that as well, just, you know, in other areas of technology. Uh, just recently, there was... Uh, these reports coming out about the FBI's database of uh, biometric data and the concerns people have about that and even interesting questions like do I, do I own my own face? <laughs> Should I, shouldn't I have access to data about me? And the, this again, you know, we're in a world where our technology is Pervasive, And in many ways, that is amazing. It is giving us an almost seamless experience of having our desires catered to before we can even give thought to them. That is the big promise of the Internet of Things. And I love that idea. It is something that really appeals to me. On the flip side, you start to realize that your regular actions are creating data and that data does, in fact, have value, different value to different entities out there. And so having these sort of technologies inviting them in once you have reconciled this idea and you realize that uh that this is going on then you can start to make those strategies how is the was the best way of handling that both on the the end user side and on the back end side so that it is a responsible approach that's really what uh what your company is is looking into right the idea of of uh security and and helping companies protect uh, customer data.
4: Yeah, so it's actually kind of very, very kind of similar to this. So I think, you know, one of the things um, you were kind of touching upon is this kind of expectation of organizations to do a better job of safeguarding your information, essentially being responsible custodians of your data. The challenge for most companies, um, you know maybe with, with less sophistication than a Google, but maybe even Google, is that they collect so much information about you, and they collect it in so many different places and so many applications, it doesn't necessarily mean that all that information is tied together, but you are leaving digital footprints across organizations, and so these, these companies are essentially becoming large data collection points. And it's hard for you as a consumer to know exactly what digital footprints you've left. You want to know what assets you've left with them. And believe it or not, um, you know, if you think about uh, accounting and how companies are expense- expected to have responsible um, uh, tools in place to track how much revenue that comes in, how that money is getting uh, dispersed, who it's paying. So that's all about accounting and financial uh, responsibility, on the digital side, there's very little of that today, and that's kind of the origin of Big ID. You could think of Big ID as a tool set to help big companies understand where their customer information is, what's at risk or potentially uh, at risk, either in terms of breach or in terms of uh, misuse, uh, and then how to better understand how that information is getting used in the organization, either to um, help ensure that it's compliant with regulations Or secondly, that it's complied with their own kind of privacy rules, their own kind of consent agreements that they've uh, created between themselves and their consumers. And so I think that this idea of a ledger or accounting software for privacy information doesn't as yet exist. And I think increasingly, just given the number of digital touch points that we have with the companies we interact with, um, that it's going to be certainly a future requirement.
0: I think that's really interesting, and I, I, I'm thankful that there are organizations like yours that are looking into this to try and create those best practices. Because, uh, as we've seen recently, it's, it's scholarship has shown it takes very few data points to be able to link some information to a specific person, and I think a lot of companies out there uh, may not even be aware of the implications of some of the data they're collecting not through any sort of of maliciousness it simply is as you point out there's so many of these little digital touch points that you cannot necessarily anticipate what the consequences are from the from the very beginning and uh, it, it's amazing to me to think that this is going on everywhere and and it, it's it's a it's a snowball that's already going down the hill it's just going to keep on going It's very reassuring to hear that there are people actively thinking about these and try these issues and trying to find the best ways of handling that kind of information, so that we don't have uh, any, or we can avoid as many chaotic moments of 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 absolute failure as possible. Again, uh, I think a lot of people assume that big companies are uh, actively. Pursuing the uh, the the collection and selling of all of the data, and that's not the case across the board. There are companies that are collecting a great deal of data in the pursuit of whatever business they do, but it's not through the it's not necessarily with an intent to do anything, uh, you know, uh, commercial with that information. But knowing this makes it easier for those companies to be more responsible. And uh, and also to maybe even get to a point where they change up their practices so that they're only collecting the points of data that are relevant to their business.
4: Yeah, well, look. Certainly, that's the intent of Big ID is to help companies be more responsible around their digital assets, their customer assets, which you could argue are probably their most important assets. You know, sometimes you've heard people talk about employees, and you know, your your most important assets are your employees, and they walk out uh, the door every every night. Well, your customers are pretty valuable too, because mm-hmm. if they if they stop patronizing you, your business suffers. And their loyalty increasingly is very fickle. So if they don't have confidence that you are protecting their personal information, their kind of digital, digital footprints, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go to somebody that does take better care of that. Which again is, is why it kind of makes sense to have, uh, technology that gives organizations Better, better tooling to uh, track, manage, protect those digital personal assets, that digital information that represents kind of who you are, where you live, where you've been, what you like, when you're going on vacation, etc.
0: Now, I've got a question for you personally, which is that. Are you at a point where you would adopt a technology such as Amazon Echo or Google Home? Or would you personally wait a little longer or, you know, where do you stand on that? Because I can tell you, being aware of these issues, I guess it's only fair that I answer my own question, being aware of these issues and and being cognizant of them, I'm still leaning toward getting one, knowing what I know and taking the risk in order to have the benefit. Uh, My wife feels very differently about it, so that's why I do not have one. But but Mm -hmm. I'm curious what, as you, as an expert on this subject matter, how you feel about that?
4: Yeah, so I think there's there's two things that come into play. Obviously, uh, I'm a 15-year veteran of the security industry with a company focused on enterprise privacy management now. So I understand some of the consequences and repercussions. But I'm also, at heart, a person that likes technology. I was a reader of Isaac Asimov as a kid, yeah. Heinlein, all the kind of great science fiction writers. And I realize the future is coming towards us. And we could either try and hide or duck, or we could try and embrace it and understand the consequences. So for me personally, um, I look at this and try to understand how this technology uh, will impact our lives going forward. So I will be an embracer of the technology because I think, as I said at the very beginning, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of convenience that comes with it. But it's also important for me to understand some of the consequences by going through it firsthand. Because at the end of the day, if I'm, you know, I'm part of a team building technology to better help protect customer information, then I I need to understand the implications of these new um, home automation, car automation technologies,
0: Excellent. Dimitri Sirota, thank you so much. Founder and CEO of Big ID. You really helped me and I hope my listeners understand a bit more of the implications of this. I I realize that this sort of technology that has this incredible uh, connection to our personal lives, really a level of intimacy that most technology does not have, carries with it some things that can be a little worrisome, but I, I agree with you. I think If we enter into it with uh, open eyes and we are aware of the challenges, we're not denying that challenges exist, but we are aware of them, that allows us to actually overcome those challenges and reap the benefits of this really powerful tool. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us.
4: My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: I think it's really important to remember that Mr. Sirota actually said we should embrace technology, but do so... In a way where we're aware of the consequences and we are doing our best to mitigate any negative fallout from this technology moving forward. We shouldn't deny it. We shouldn't try to stop it, but we should definitely be responsible with the way we develop it and the way that we use it. Potentially it has the capacity to make our lives easier. I mean, imagine being able to handle everything by, by just shifting it over to your personal assistant who lives everywhere. You can access that personal assistant wherever you might be through whatever computer or smartphone or standalone device you happen to have at your disposal at that place and access all of that, those features, everything from entertainment to handling travel and stuff that you want taken care of that you don't necessarily want to attend to yourself, so you can save that time to do something else. That's a really cool idea, and I love the promise of digital assistance, the idea that we will slowly get toward this future where the technology around us anticipates what we need before we can give voice to it. I love that thought. And the idea that, that my life just becomes sort of magical as a result, because the technology is shifting things to my whim before I can even voice what that whim is. Before I might even be aware there's a whim. I could be whimless. I'm done saying whim. Well, that was the 2016 version of AI Assistants and You. Obviously, there's a lot more to say now. I mean, some AI Assistants have been abandoned, like Cortana. Uh, No longer really a thing. Also, Amazon has been cutting way back on its division for its personal assistant that I will not name at this point. But yeah, uh, there have been companies that have been taking massive cuts in those departments, at least as I'm recording these intros and outros, which, by the way, was way back in January of 2023. Uh, This should be publishing many months after that, but at we're i'm currently living in a time where those those divisions are getting massive cuts because it turns out that these assistants have not been particularly valuable as far as revenue generation and if you can't generate revenue from a product eventually you start to see cutbacks for those products because it doesn't make sense to keep supporting them if they're just draining resources and not contributing to the overall health of the company so It's been one of those things where companies have found it difficult to leverage these AI assistants in a way to generate revenue. And uh, yeah, it may be that AI assistants are one of those things that ultimately kind of fade away unless that changes. Maybe by the time you're listening to that, this has changed, and I'll need to do an update on this episode anyway. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. Let me know. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download, free to use. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff. Just put Tech Stuff in the little search field. It'll pop up. You go into the podcast page. There's a little microphone icon. If you click on that, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. If you would prefer not to do a voice message, you can reach out via Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C C-O-N-C-U-R
3: O N C U R.com.